Welcome to an episode of the award-winning podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design and architecture. In this episode, Susan Friedman, the president of Public Art Fund, presents current exhibitions, including Nicholas Galanin's impressive new sculpture, In Every Language There Is Land, and Cada Lengua Hay Una Tierra, at Brooklyn Bridge Park. Art installations at LaGuardia Airport by Jeppe Hein, Sabrina Horning, Laura Owens, and Sarah C. At Newark Airport, art installations by Karen Olivier and Lakwa Nuna Yawar, as well as art installations at the Moynihan Train Hall by Stan Douglas, Elmgren and Dragset, and Kahinda Wiley. Public Art Fund is also behind the late Filida Barlow's final series of large-scale sculptures, Prank, in City Hall Park, that opened in the beginning of June. Public Art Fund believes in free access to great contemporary art for all, that artists are an essential part of our civic dialogue, and that art has the power to ignite conversations among different people, to open hearts and minds, and to help shape our collective future. So, Susan, again, thank you so much for doing this. Maybe if we could start by giving our listeners an idea of what the Public Art Fund uh, represents. I get your um, beautiful newsletter, which is very concise, and there you have temporary and permanent exhibitions. And I thought maybe we could just survey those a little bit and, and see, you know. Well, I have listened to previous podcasts of yours and noticed that all of your guests, of course, begin by thanking you for the opportunity to be part of this. And I don't want to miss my opportunity to thank you for your interest in Public Art Fund and taking the time to speak with me today, so. That's very nice of you, thank you so much. Well, I can say that the first time I got in touch with the Public Art Fund was actually uh, the uh, Icelandic Danish uh, artist. His name is Olafur Eliasson. When he did yes. the, the waterfalls around Manhattan, I thought that was quite something. I was saying to someone just yesterday that I was down at the tip of Manhattan overlooking Governor's Island in Brooklyn, and that the waterfalls are indelibly marked on the skyline of New York for me from that project. And I will never look out and not see them for, which I am incredibly grateful. It was an extraordinary project and the stars aligned for us on that to have Mayor Michael Bloomberg in City Hall and to be able to, um, create man-made waterfalls in the harbor of New York City and to give people a new way to experience the city. So many New Yorkers said to me, I've lived here my whole life. I've never been on the water. I've never seen the city from this perspective. And of course, that's what the Public Art Fund's all about. It's about giving artists opportunities to realize their dreams, to make these extraordinarily ambitious projects, which use the city as their canvas, and to surprise and delight New Yorkers and visitors to the city in their daily lives by coming across these interventions, which reframe the way they see the city and the way they interact with the city. And the dialogue between people around this art is very exciting to eavesdrop on and to directly engage in because <laughs> everyone in New York has an opinion. Mm -hmm. So you get to hear what they think. And of course, 
making art so accessible and immediate for people, free of charge every day, art you can touch and explore, is really something very exciting for us. That is, that is fantastic. And, and I, I read somewhere in an interview with you that uh, one of your um, favorite moments when, when you saw Louis Bourgeois' uh, spider at Rockefeller Center, the, the mother spider <laughs> and two other spiders. It was gorgeous. And at night it was just magical and it was unexpected. And that's so much of what we do is just unexpected. Yes. I would like to maybe start at the, at the Brooklyn Bridge Park. And that's pretty new, that installation by the artist uh, Nicholas Galinin's uh, huge uh, structure there that says land. <laughs> it does indeed. And if I were uh, a linguist, I could give you the full title uh, in English and in Spanish, but we can leave that the challenge uh, of our listeners. But yes, it was installed last week. It's made from the same materials that the border wall is made from. Uh, and Nichols is a indigenous artist living in Alaska. And of course, issues of land are very prominent in everyone's mind right now, but certainly for him as an artist. I love the fact that it's actually the, the letters of land in various uh, formations here that is interesting. So when you work at the Brooklyn Bridge Park with a new installation by Nicholas Gallini, uh, Gallinin, um, how, how does that project come about? I mean, is it, um, do you work, is it a committee that's working? Is it Nicholas Baum, your chief curator? We have a brilliant curatorial team led by Nicholas, who is our executive and artistic director. And very often what happens is we will invite artists to come work with us and Nicholas or the curator working on the project will literally take to the streets with artists and they will walk, walk around New York City, visit some of our core sites. Obviously we talked about the waterfalls. Those were not our core sites. That was a totally new area to be working in, in on the waterfront. So I think Nicholas Bohm had it in his mind that Nicholas Galanin's work could be quite wonderful on the waterfront in Brooklyn Bridge Park. And I think when they arrived there together, it was certainly confirmed that that Nicholas felt very strongly that he wanted his work there and the dialogue in between the, the bridges next to the carousel overlooking the skyline um, and in a very significant piece of land in New York City that's recently been reclaimed for the public and turned into this glorious public amenity that is Brooklyn Bridge Park. So we uh, curate internally and then get permission from whoever owns the land that we're working on. And in this case, it's Brooklyn Bridge Park. We make presentations to the park, and of course, we have an ongoing relationship with them. This is not our first piece that we've cited there. So it's a wonderful partnership that has grown over the years. So how long is your planning horizon then? Because uh, if you commission work, that will take some time and to get all the various permits and all the stakeholders. I've learned that in New York, uh, there are many stakeholders that you have to focus on. So you must have a, a very long planning horizon in your in your work. In the case of, of this, the piece that's currently in Brooklyn Bridge Park, it actually happened very quickly for us. 
Uh, normally, it's probably a two-year minimum. We, we're normally planned out two or three years in advance for the waterfalls. That was an even longer horizon, as you can imagine, because we had to get permissions from the state, local, federal government, from all many environmental agencies, landmark agencies, the Army Corps. It just went on and on and on the list of permissions. But in a site like Brooklyn Bridge Park, where we have a relationship with the site and the site owners, uh, it's not quite as complicated. And it was a matter of Nicholas coming up with the idea and doing the engineering and the fabrication. And I can understand the landowner's interest in this as well, because the sculptures is incredible, uh, incredibly impressive. And it, it reminds you of Robert Indiana's uh, sculpture, Love. Here it is yes. land, and it's also twisted in, in several dimensions. So I, I find it incredibly <laughs> impressive, actually. Yes, I think it's a very intentional nod to that work. Other projects that uh, may interest our listener is, of course, um, the work that you have done with the two airports uh, at Newark Liberty Airport and at LaGuardia. And, um, was this process different to uh, the Brooklyn Bridge Park in terms of how it came about and uh, the process of making this happen? The Port Authority is the connecting tissue between the two airports, but they both had different entities developing the terminals. And in each case, there were different panels that were assembled to review the artwork. So we solicited proposals from a group of artists and the ones you see today are the ones that were chosen. And of course, what's so exciting to me is if you want to see one of Laura Owens's great works of art, you don't go to one of the museums in New York City necessarily where some work of hers might or might not be on view, but you go to LaGuardia Airport. And of course, it's the largest piece she's ever done, one of the largest mosaics that exists uh, in North America. And, you know, for people who are coming to the airports now, of course, Sarah Z has a beautiful show at the Guggenheim Museum, which references her work at LaGuardia. Laura Owens uh, did the, the mosaic piece, and Sarah Z did the three-dimensional piece that hangs above the, the uh, arrivals area, so you can look up from arrivals, and when you uh, enter the airport to, to depart uh, to your destination, it's the work that you see centrally located. I also know that you do have seminars uh, around the projects that you do. I actually attended the one uh, about the Newark airport, where you presented Lacanuna um, Yavar's uh, brilliant, uh, it's like a mural almost, like a multimedia. Uh, like a multimedia features, you know, flora, fauna, and uh, and people, and uh, I, I found that to be incredibly interesting and and also very moving that the airport workers were part of this uh, project and added to it, which I found was uh, pretty interesting. And um, also, you have at the Newark, you have Karen Oliver's uh, piece. 
that is quite incredible. It's like a photo collage of Newark and its surroundings. And uh, you can look at it from below and up and from above and down. And the perspectives change uh, in both of them as well. The only thing that Karen said was that she was a little bit worried that when the passengers, uh, when they arrive at, at Newark, they're so they're in a hurry. So they fly by her <laughs> incredible piece of art into the check-in and stuff like that. And when they are relaxed and they're waiting for their flight, that's that's where the, the art object maybe should have been because then you have the time to really contemplate that that might be the only sort of question there well this the cynic among us would say so many flights are delayed that when you arrive in the airport and find out that you unexpectedly have time on your hands you can pause before you go through security but of course you can see karen's as you're exiting as well but i i appreciate her sentiment um we, we all find ourselves in need of stopping and pausing as we move about our daily lives. And I do think that Karen Olivier's work uh, is, gives good reason to pause. Well, it's, it's highly recommended for all our listeners to, to actually go to Newark, even though you're not flying out of there, just to, to admire those two pieces. I, I, I really find them extraordinary, uh, thought-provoking and, and uh, beautiful. Um, then La Guardia, of course. Sorry. No, I was going to say, even as you're driving by in, at La Guardia, you can see Sabine Hernig's work, especially at night. Um, the beautiful piece that she's done of this, uh, the inverted skylines, the skylines that speak to each other, uh, connecting the parking area and where you would get your Uber or Lyft uh, yeah. to the terminal itself. Uh, so yeah, it, it, remarkably, during the pandemic, when there were so few places one could go to see art, People did go to LaGuardia and when Moynihan Train Hall opened to the train hall to look at these extraordinary installations of museum quality art. And the guards uh, needed to learn both where the work was and what it was because so many people were coming into the buildings, not to for transportation, but to be in a large, splendid civic space to to breathe and reflect and see beautiful artwork. I haven't seen uh, Sabine's uh, work in, in person. Uh, um, La Guardia Vistas with this incredible photo collage of 1,100 photographs of New York City and uh, on this uh, beautiful wall lit up by, by, by the, the sun obviously and, and the lights, uh, it's incredible. And then there's also uh, some playfulness going on there at La Guardia uh, through Jeppe Hines' work Indeed. Uh, called All Your Wishes. Now, so what is that? It's a series of balloons that in fact are so lifelike that one maintenance person got out a ladder thinking a balloon had in fact escaped someone's <laughs> grasp and was up against the ceiling and then realized it was not. But there's a wonderful <laughs> pathway of over three dozen balloons, I believe, as well as wonderful sculptures that are uh, benches to sit in and relax in and those are our past security so you can take your time uh enjoying them but uh 
They're looping benches. They're in a bright orange. And uh, every time I've been to the airport, I, I usually see people curled up in them reading or uh, kids coloring or on their iPads and just enjoying these non-traditional fun ways to experience the art, the art and the airport. Yeah, I, I think it's a very, it's a very uh, great idea to, to have that, especially in that kind of a setting. And uh, I read about it and it says here that uh, um, one of the intent is to spark joy and alter perceptions and open the viewer to new experiences. And I think that is probably the ethos of uh, everything that you do, uh, you know, in, in many ways. Um, at La Guardia, there's also artwork by Laura Owens, um, which celebrates New York and depicts uh, dozens of iconic images and motif. So um, we talk about uh, Brooklyn Bridge Park, we talk about the airports uh, where you can see all these things. And Moynihan Train Hall you mentioned too, which is quite extraordinary. And I, ha I had no idea that this uh, sculpture of the cityscape that comes from above onto you, so you're actually flying over the cityscape in a sense. Uh, how did that come about? Elm Green and Dragsat are two very talented, uh, a team of artists who we've worked with before. We did their swimming pool that was on its side, Van Gogh's ear at uh, Rockefeller Center. You know, they took one look at this site and when Nicholas walked through the, the station, because this was obviously a retrofitted adaptive reuse walked around looked at the plans the obvious place you think you're going to be placing artwork is either on the ground or on the walls and of course they said to us no no we want you to put the work on the ceiling in these two glorious entryways so that was quite unexpected and as artists so often do they took this challenge and met it and then some, because I agree with you. I think this cityscape entitled Hive is nothing short of extraordinary. And you can see it as you're walking down 31st Street. Um, and then Kehinda Wiley's incredible piece with the break dancers in a you know, stained glass window, certainly unexpected, an extraordinary reference to breakdancing, which which really began on the streets of New York. So yeah. grabbing a piece of New York City culture, putting it on the ceiling, totally inverting the way we think of stained glass windows and what we expect to see when we're looking uh, up at the sky. So I think that both those artists, or all three of the artists, brilliantly handled the commissions. And of course, that Stan Douglas has a series of vignettes uh, photographs which were staged based on historic references. He researched newspaper articles and every piece of historical information he could find out about Penn Station during its brief history and staged moments of time that took place in the station. People think they're historic photographs and in fact they're not. Uh, they were staged during the pandemic, oh, just, to, just to add a layer of complexity and challenge for all these artists, these works were all done during the pandemic. That's incredible. So, you know, Kehinda, Laura Owens, 
Sarah, I, Sarah Z was the only local artist. So these artists conceived these works, worked with us on site, you know, through all sorts, through phone calls with, you know, video chatting and didn't see their work installed for up to two years, three years after it went in because of the realities of travel during the time. Yeah. So they conceived of these brilliant works and then didn't get to see them. Uh, but of course saw that they were being received quite enthusiastically by the <laughs> audiences and the public here in New York. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's incredible. Stan Douglas' work, Penn Station's Half Century, as you mentioned, uh, reminds me of uh, someone who said, and probably you know this, a quote said that when you arrived through the old Penn Station, you arrived as an emperor to, the, uh, to New York City when you walked down those stairs. And he contrasted that by this Penn station we have now where you come crawling up like rats <laughs> on the staircase up to the city it, it was a terrible loss uh, to lose that building of course and we should also add there that the buildings that are coming towards us from the ceiling are actually combined landmarks from Chicago Hong Kong Kuala Lumpur London Paris as well as New York so that I think right. adds adds uh, an interesting uh, uh, dimension because I saw some Jean Nouvelle's uh, building from London there when I looked at the picture. So that's a fun little thing one could do. A nod to travelers internationally. A bit of home for everyone in New York. Yeah. Such an international city. I think it's genius. I think it's so it's it's courageous and it's so smart and uh, intriguing. And Kehinde Wiley's work, of course, with these break dancers that seems to be floating up towards the ceiling. It's uh, now. I, I think uh, I congratulate you. Now, when you're working with the airports and the Moynihan Train Hall, and you do it in partnership with uh, other organizations, what is your role? We have a project management team. So one of the advantages of working with Public Art Fund on these permanent commissions is that we can deliver the whole project from a curatorial realization, marketing expertise. Our team knows how to do it all. So yes, we work with the architects and engineers who are building the facilities, but our role is focused, in fact, on the artwork and realizing the artwork and helping to promote the artwork and create this signage and the collateral materials to give the public an opportunity to really understand what they're seeing and experiencing. And I know when you spoke with Sandra Bloodworth uh, from the Art for Transit program or MTA Arts and Design, she mentioned Bloomberg Connects and we're very excited that we too are part of the Bloomberg Connects app so that when people come in, they can look to the signage, see a QR code, come to our website, they can go to Bloomberg Connects and find out more and plan their, their trip to New York by seeing some of the diverse offerings that we have citywide.
Let's turn a little bit to, to the Public Art Fund and, 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 and the question is of course how did this come about and, and when we look back it's very difficult not to talk about uh, your mother. I'm delighted to talk about my mother. It's a great source of pride for me and uh, great institutions and cultural legacies that we take for granted now in New York City are the genius or vision of individuals. And in 1977, my mother was leading two presenting arts organizations City Walls and the Public Arts Council. City Walls was a group was primarily painters. Who, during the you know fiscal crisis, sides of walls were suddenly left bare, and once again, artists are called in to solve urban dilemmas or challenges. And City Walls was born, and artists were being commissioned across the city to paint sides of, of walls, which some have now been obliterated because construction came back and the walls were no longer visible. Richard Haas has a wonderful Trump loin mural down in Soho, which can still be seen. Frosty Myers has a piece on Houston Street down by NYU. There's a, a city wall by Tanya. But then there was the Public Arts Council, which was part of the Municipal Arts Society, and my, which was really creating opportunities for sculptors to do temporary work. And my mother had this idea to sort of bring the two together and, and to found the Public Art Fund with this notion of giving artists a chance to be in dialogue with the city and bringing art out of the traditional confines and venues of museums and galleries and concert halls and giving them a new platform and giving the public a chance to experience art as part of their daily lives. So your mother, Doris Friedman, she actually has a plaza called uh, after her. Doris Friedman Plaza at the entrance to Central Park at Fifth Avenue and 60th Street, perfectly aligned for this conversation, has an extraordinary work by Barty Kerr, which is entitled Ancestor. So there is my ancestor. It's a wonderful figure that she has created, which harkens back to uh, to the ancestors that are part of who we all are, individually and collectively. Your mother did a lot of things. Apart from what we mentioned here, um, she also legalized artist residence in Soho Loft buildings, which I am very grateful for because I live in one. And um, ah. she also was a supporter of the percentage legislation. She protected the Grand Central Terminal and she was involved in a number of different uh, organizations. So what was her gift? Uh, two things. One, she was a social worker by training and an artist by passion. And she really believed that the works of art could change the way we feel about ourselves and about our city and about the way we interact as a society and as individuals. This notion that works of art can spark the imagination and nurture the soul and enable us to really see, as I said, ourselves and each other in a new way. Mm -hmm. So when she worked in the Lindsay administration as director of cultural affairs, she worked with Joe Papp to start Shakespeare in the Park and the film mobile and the jazz mobile and mounted the first public sculpture exhibitions that the city really was able to do. And it was 
She was also very involved in the civil rights movement and working with artists to both raise awareness and raise funds for in an activist way. So this notion that artists have a way to see things that help the rest of us see the world in ways that are of great value and can be very nourishing for us as individuals. So it was the power of her belief. It was her ability to persevere, to not accept no, and to uh, rally a group of supporters to like-minded people. She was very compelling. She had a vision and she was passionate and it was hard to say no. It, it's always easier, certainly, with city government to say no. But if you look hard enough, there's usually somebody who's very willing to be your partner and loves giving, being given the opportunity to think differently or to create new challenges. And that was one of the gifts of the Bloomberg administration because it came right from the top. And the mayor said, this, this is good for our city and let's find ways to do it. Yeah. So if we did a project with Con Edison and Lawrence Weiner. And the people at Con Ed loved working with an artist on creating manhole cover. They loved the challenge, thinking in a new way, and were grateful for the opportunity. The, the people working on the waterfalls had never been challenged with this kind of task to explore all the contingencies to make a waterfall safe in New York City. Yeah. What what did we need to consider about the quality of the water and and the spray and the one thing no one thought of was the salt. That water was very clean. We had it zapped in and uh you know lots of different ways that we purified the water, but we didn't there was no desalinization. So when the spray blew, uh there were trees that Browned and went dormant earlier than they would have normally. They all came back the next season, but that was the, the unexpected. Yeah, it was interesting for me to understand. You mentioned in an interview that the Public Art Fund came out of the 1960s, happenings in the street, and was a whole new way of engaging artists in the city. And I find that uh, very important when you look back uh, at the history here to see that that is also a driving force here. And your your mother, Doris Friedman, of course, was one very important person here. She's the founder of the Public Art Fund. And it was very interesting when I read that she enjoyed public controversy that modern sculpture frequently provoked and argued that this in itself could aid the function of art. And so I was thinking, is there enough controversy today, do you think? Are we doing enough to, to provoke people, to provoke people's feelings and their, their views on, on certain things? Is that something you think about? Well, it is. I think my mother loved the idea that people were talking about art. People who suddenly had permission to talk about art, who didn't think it was that they had a background in art or that it was for them. Public art is for them and they have every right to talk about it and have opinions about it. And one of the things I love about sites that we curate on an ongoing basis is that it helps people develop a sense of taste and and think about art and the way they see the city in a new way. 
oh, I love that piece, but this one's even more exciting to me because <laughs> fill in the blank. I think when my mother was talking about that wonderful discourse of getting a whole city talking about an artwork and how amazing it could be that you put, place a tiny object somewhere that can inspire outrage or delight, um, the level of con, I think the level of uh, discourse today isn't as polite and forgiving as it was when she was talking about loving the dialogue surrounding public art and loving the idea that people were in fact talking about works of art and talking about the role art played in the life of the city. We're, we're at a much meaner moment in time or less forgiving and in some ways less open moment of time, I think. And and I'm afraid that sometimes the discourse isn't as open or forgiving. The the spirit of exploration and really trying to understand what an artist is trying to say, what it what a work would mean for one community versus another community. Some of some of these conversations get lost. And of course, the background of an artist is very much at the forefront, often of how people view their work. We see artists being canceled, their work being taken out of museums. Uh, there are, it, it is a moment in time when things are very much in flux, I think. And I think we could all be a little bit more, give everyone a little more grace. Yeah, but maybe the Public Art Fund is more important than ever because it actually brings people sort of physically together to look at art and discuss art rather than sitting in front of your computer. Perhaps you have a, a much more important role to play today, given the environment uh, that we live in. Well, I think so. I also think we have a sacred trust with the public. People are not choosing to look at the work we present. We're, they're not paying admission or going to a museum or gallery uh, on a free day or wandering. They aren't making the deliberate step to look at artwork. We're putting it into their daily life. Yeah. So I think that we take very seriously that role and the level of respect and sensitivity to communities. But along with that sacred trust, it goes both ways. And you'd like to think that same care that's that's taken with place in the art is part of how people receive it. And by and large, that is in fact the case. What people might not like it per se, but I think people like that it's there. They They see the value of the exchange of ideas and having their mind pushed in a new way. I think people become most uncomfortable with it, with art that they feel like they don't understand for some reason. Mm -hmm. And it makes them feel uncomfortable or feel less. I, I think that the art that we put out in public is very accessible. And the more time you spend with it or the deeper you go, the more layers there are to appreciate and understand and get even more out of the artwork. If you look at Nick's piece in Brooklyn Bridge Park, you see that it says land. If you know Robert Indiana's work, it adds another layer mm. to it. If you 
do the investigation to find out what the piece is made of and you realize it's the Mexican border wall fence material, it, there's another layer. If you find out that he's an indigenous artist, there's another layer. Yeah. So at face value, the work is very powerful, but the, the more time and more open you are to it, the deeper and richer the experience is, I think. You're absolutely right. And speaking of uh, controversy, we spoke about that before. I noted that there was some controversy, or maybe it was a storm in a teacup, I don't know, uh, with Ayuveve's sculpture, Good Fences Make Good Neighbors at the Washington Square. There were some residents there that was against, uh, against making the installation, uh, but I read the article and I thought that uh, it was pretty much everybody was communicating back and forth. Uh, what is your view on it now, uh, some years later? It all had to do with the placement of the Christmas tree. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and moving the Christmas tree 20 feet. It wasn't the artwork. It was the timing of the artwork. I see. And finally, somebody at the community board stood up and said, what does this community stand for? How could we be so inflexible that we wouldn't move our holiday tree 20 or 30 feet to allow this unbelievably important and beautiful work to be placed and to give a message that needs to be heard around the world? And we're known in this community for standing up for what we believe in. We have to be more open and more flexible. So we did get permission, and and the controversy wasn't really about the art. It was just about the placement of the art, and it was somewhat of a surprise, I have to say. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, though, that the piece is called Good Fences Make Good Neighbors, because it, yes, it was a neighborly conflict. The interesting part of this is that it, that um, sculpture is now actually outside the National Museum of Sweden. Yeah, Someone just sent me a picture of that. Yeah, it's from a building from 1864, and uh, it's right there outside, and uh, it's lovely. It's placed right by the water. Of course, that was a site-specific work, which was designed to fit within the Washington Square Arch, and it just goes to show the power that it continues to have in a new site. So even though a work is created for a site, that doesn't mean that it can't be powerfully relocated in this, you know, a temporary work can't then move and, and have that same impact and power, which I think it very much does. How do you report to the board that uh, we're, we're, we're accomplishing our, our, our mission? Is it, is it a formal process or is it more a, a conversation? Metrics of success are very much something that that everyone in the art world talks about. If you're a museum, I guess attendance figures become something you can use. Social media is in many ways our visitor service desk. We, we engage with the public in a dialogue through, uh, through Instagram, through Facebook, through Twitter, through the different social media channels, uh, now more and more on TikTok. But I think that we have a unique board because they realize that the measure of success is the impact we have on the life of the city, which is very hard to quantify necessarily. But uh, when you go to Brooklyn Bridge Park and see people running through the sculpture, sitting on the lawn, looking at the sculpture, when you see the sculpture as part of the skyline, I think it's clear 
that it's a home run. So uh, it, it can be hard to quantify what success is. Is it an article that makes it to the front page of the newspaper? Is it being featured in one of the arts journals? Is it, you know, the Post versus the Times? Uh, I remember when we did the piece with Tatsunishi uh, discovering Columbus, uh, that it was on the front page of the New York Post and, it, and the headline was, Hello, Sailor. It was, you know, so we hadn't been on the front page of the New York Post before, the yeah. hometown paper. Uh, so there are many different ways of measuring success. Uh, very often we get really wonderful emails and correspondence from the public saying thank you. Thank you for bringing this work to us. So how can people, uh, our listeners here, how can they um, um, support your movement here? What are the various forms? You become a member. I became a member the other day. It doesn't cost anything I, I, I saw. And so you can donate. What other opportunities are there? You can come to our talks. Mm -hmm. You can visit our website. You can visit our social media sites. And you can let us know what you think. And of course, we accept monetary support, large and small. It takes a village to make public art, and every contribution matters, and it all adds up to enabling us to do the work we do. Looking back at your career at the Public Art Fund, and you're looking ahead, what would be your dream project? Part of the joy of this job and why I could be at the Public Art Fund for over three decades is the unexpected. And this notion that artists see the city in a whole new way. So when Ai Weiwei did a five borough exhibition with us and was in the subways and street banners and bus shelters and link NYC kiosks, as well as the sculptural pieces that were at, as you mentioned, Washington Square Park at Doris Friedman Plaza. We had pieces that were part fences as part of the architecture in the city. We had the, the piece in Flushing Meadow Park. That was beyond my imagination. Who thought that we would be in all five boroughs in this kind of way? We recently did one of our bus shelter projects that we're now in New York, Chicago, and Boston, and we were in Abu Jan and the Ivory Coast because the artist is from there. Did I think we would be in Africa? How spectacular. Did I imagine waterfalls in the New York City Harbor? It was beyond my imagination. Did I think we would do permanent works in these grand civic space, spaces, these transportation hubs, transforming them into really celebrated civic structures? You know, Moynihan Train Hall, LaGuardia, JFK, the collaborations we're doing with Lincoln Center, I couldn't have imagined them until these partnerships became part of our reality and we were able to explore new territory. And of course, it's the work of the artists. So, uh, so the joy for me is that I can't really expect what's next. In the near future, what is happening? What should we look up? You mentioned an exhibition uh, earlier here that's coming up. Uh, so we are now in May. Um, so June 5th, just weeks away, is a new installation taking place. Uh, and Felipe Paez is our next 
J.C. Decoe Artist, uh, which is the partnership we have in the bus shelters. And that's going to be in New York, Chicago, Boston, and Mexico. And that opens on August 9th. So we have a June opening in City Hall Park, and then we have an August opening. Again, it is really just a, a privilege to work with such a huge spectrum um, with such a diverse group of artists who yeah. really bring the unexpected into our daily lives. And as I said, when you asked me what's what's the dream project, the fact that, that I can't imagine it doesn't mean that an artist can't, and that's what's so exciting for us. <laughs> that's a very good way of putting it. I hope that that the listeners will think when they are at the Museum of Modern Art, for instance, of detouring to go to see the work at Doris Friedman Plaza. When they're enjoying Brooklyn Bridge Park, that they'll walk to the northern end to see Nicholas Galanin's piece. When they're heading downtown, perhaps to see the memorial or to visit one of the cultural sites downtown that they'll they'll stop in City Hall Park that they'll make a point of che of of checking where they are um, one of the fun things about our bus shelter project is their maps so you can locate and say oh wait here I am one of the bus shelters is just a block away or just down the block here or if I walk two blocks there so there are ways to just enrich your your experience of the city with encounters with public art and our website makes it very easy to do that. Bloomberg Connects right now is working on, uh, as an app, coming up with adjacencies, which will in fact locate you and say, if you're here, you can go here. It's a wonderful public service because of course, uh, Bloomberg, Bloomberg has great vision um, in the role that the culture plays in the life of the city. But yes, on our website, you can get maps of where our bus shelter projects are in Boston, in New York, and in Chicago, and you can plot out your trip accordingly. You can also just see on a map where our, where our works are, and we're going to be engaging more and more on giving people ways to, to plot, plot, plot a day looking at public art. Um, because what could be more fun than that, of course? <laughs> what could be more fun than that? Well, Susan, I'd like to thank you so much for, for taking the time and to tell us more about the Public Art Fund. I love what, what is written here, that art has the power to activate conversations, to open hearts and minds and help shape the future. And, and that is really what you're doing. And it's a, it's a wonderful um, contribution to the evolution of this beautiful city that we love so much. So I'd like to thank you. Thank you, it's been my pleasure. This is Art Insiders New York, and my name is Anders Holst. If you enjoyed this episode and have family and friends who love New York and are passionate about the world of art design and architecture, please spread the word by following us on artinsidersnewyork.com or liking us on our Facebook page, Art Insiders New York. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2023.